0: Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're all here today. We have the privilege of having Sam and Carrie here with us this morning. This is their last week in the States. They're headed back to the mission field. And so they're here this morning so we can pray over them. It just really struck me that you're going to be in an environment in less than two weeks on the other side of the planet where we've kind of had a similar experience in just this way, just trust me in this. Uh, A lot of you are just now able to come back to church, and you've known what it is to be separated from church family. Imagine being on the other side of the earth where people aren't familiar with your language and wanting desperately to worship in your own language and to be able to be with people who understand, you know, just part of your culture. And so Sam and Carrie are stepping into that environment where they will be separated from that in the way that some of you have been and to a a much larger degree on their part. So I know that this is a precious time for you to be able to be with a church family like this. So one of the things you heard them specifically ask for is that we would pray for them. And I'm going to invite you to pray with me this morning. And I think I heard a few things come out of Sam and Carrie's mouth that they really want to be able to put the Word of God into the hands of people who don't currently have the Word of God in their language. That's a pretty worthy goal, would you agree? Okay. So how about if you stand up with me, and we're going to pray together as a church family. And I'm going to ask Rich, um, if you haven't met Rich yet, he's the director of missions. He also happens to be the daddy of Sam. So they share the same last name, and Sam and Carrie, um, like Sam's other siblings, have a huge heart for missions work around the world, and this is evidence of it. So Sam is going to be on my side. I'm going to put my hand on him. Rich is going to put his hand on Carrie, and you join us together with your hearts as we pray for them. Father, we lift up this precious couple to you. We ask that you go before them. Prepare a path. God, we even heard Scripture declare the way that you prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. We don't find Sam and Carrie going in necessarily among enemies, but rather among friends with people who desperately need to know You, and they need Your Word in their language. It's hard to imagine, Father, that there's places in this world that don't yet have a Bible in their own tongue, but it does exist, and Sam and Carrie have sought this out, and they're going to be in the midst of that jungle environment. So God, we pray that Your protection would be over them and their children that physically you would protect them spiritually, uh, emotionally, where there's a, a loss socially, Father, for the loss of culture, that you would allow them to draw closer together as a family and that they would be bound together in this commonness of love as this church lifts them up in prayer. Cause us, Father, to be faithful, to be praying for them. You can do great things through prayer. So, Father, we ask that you go on their behalf, go before them, and and allow them to understand the language that they hear, to put it down in the Word in such a way that these individuals will be able to understand the things you declare to be true in your Word. We thank you that we have the Word in our language. We pray that you would do the same for them. So, God, send them out now with your blessing. We ask for this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Thanks for being up here, you guys. Don't sit down yet. Stand back up again. I know you're ready to take a seat, but here's what I'm going to ask you to do. By the way, um, this morning, cookies and coffee are back in the atrium. I know you're excited about that. And for the first time in like a year and four months, we can say to you, how about if you turn to the person next to you and say hello and give them a fist bump, okay? (laughs) If you happen to have a Bible with you this morning, I'm gonna ask you to uh, either pull out your hard copy or your electronic copy. You can always follow the verses along on the screen, but we're gonna be in 1 John, and we're gonna be addressing a hard question. Uh, We're in the midst of this series of hard questions that have been coming along, this is like the fifth one, and uh, this one in particular is directed towards those who are already believers in Jesus Christ. And the question is this, if I'm already saved, Why should I confess my sins? Why does the Bible call me to the point of confession? And in the big picture, we need to answer this from very two distinct aspects. I'm going to dive into those two distinct aspects with you in just a moment. But here's what I'm going to argue with you. Confession of sin is a proof of salvation. If you're looking for evidence that you're truly saved, hear me on this. A person who's not in relationship with Jesus is not going to confess sin, and the reason for that is because there's no sense of violation. If you don't have the relationship in the first place, why would you bother to feel as though you violated the relationship? So I'm going to argue with you that confession of sin is a proof of salvation. If you this morning feel compelled to deal with the sin in your life, in other words, you're putting yourself in that voluntary place where you submit yourself to God and say, I've done something wrong, you can be sure that this is one of the evidences of genuine salvation because of that intense desire to make the relationship right again. What you find John doing in 1 John is he's offering proofs of salvation. He's saying, you want to check yourself? You want some evidences that you're actually destined for heaven? He's demonstrating in 1 John how believers can be identified. And one of those test proofs is the confession of sin. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read with you through 1 John 1 just for a few verses to set up verses 8, 9, and 10, which is where we'll be this morning. But watch as verse 1 comes up on the screen. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and then he kind of hits a parenthesis here, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, end of the parentheses, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Just pause there for just a minute. Does that not sound like a person who had a first-person experience with the living Jesus, that's a person who says, I've seen him, not just myself. We have seen him. He's talking about the apostles. We've not just seen him. We've touched him. We've laid eyes on him. We've laid hands on him. And then he goes into verse 5, and this is the message we want you to know. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And here's what we're going to bear down on this morning, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. And today we're just going to dive into verse 8, 9, and 10. And I said there's two different aspects to understanding that. We're going to hit this first aspect in verse 8. It primarily deals with the issue of this first aspect of salvation. Watch how he makes the argument. If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is the apex of qualifiers. John has just led us to the edge of a cliff, and I want you to get this cliff imagery in your mind. And he's saying, here's the ultimate issue as you stand on the edge of the cliff. Can you recognize personally, can you look in your own life and identify that you have sin in your life? And he makes this question because not everybody can. Not everybody can recognize that they have sin. So there's this mental picture that popped in my mind as I was working through this, I just want to paint this imagery that I think John is imagining for us. He leads us up to the edge of a cliff, and he says, look down from that edge and look down into that canyon of your life. Can you comprehend a canyon completely full of sin? Let me paint the imagery for you. Imagine a coastal earthquake. Wouldn't be hard to imagine. We'd only have to go back to 2011 when a coastal earthquake occurred off the coast of Japan. And the tsunami that ensued afterwards that swept across the land, destroying thousands of lives, was filled with water and debris. And we can get this imagery in our mind Imagine John leading you to the edge of the cliff, and you're looking down into one of those canyons. Imagine that coastal earthquake as a tidal wave rushes across the land, filling every nook and cranny with water. And imagine that tidal wave filled with debris, and it's sweeping over, and it's flowing into the valleys and into the canyons, and it's as though John has us on the edge of a cliff, and we're looking down into one of those canyons, and he says, if you can recognize that that canyon is your life, and that canyon is filled with the dirty stench of debris, of polluted water, we would call that pollution sin. And you immediately recognize that that mess is nothing but death and destruction. In John's writing, here, church, is the clear line of demarcation for those who are true believers and those who are not. The false will deny that sin is even an issue, not even dialed into the Word of God, have no understanding of these things, or willfully ignore it. But true believers deal with it. They will confess it. And that very component is the beauty of the gospel. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, would you say amen right now? Okay. So I'm dealing overwhelmingly with an auditorium full of people who are believers in Jesus. Here's the truth of you. At one time, you did not recognize that you had sin. It required the Holy Spirit of God to peel back the blinders from your eyes for you to identify that issue. And suddenly, you recognized the magnitude of the issue and that you couldn't do anything about it. You might have been a child. You might have been an adolescent. You might have been an adult. And in that moment, when God graciously granted the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to reveal to you that you have sin and you need to deal with it, you recognize that no matter if you had 10 lifetimes, you couldn't possibly clean up that canyon of debris in your life. It required Jesus, because every single day, you keep adding to the pile of debris. Every single day, you keep sinning and adding more and more to it. So we find at its heart the gospel of Jesus is that it provides complete forgiveness of all that debris, of all that sin, of all that polluted water, of all that pollution in your life. Of all sin, He provides complete forgiveness, and I mean past sin, present sin, future sin. Whatever you did yesterday, whatever you'll do 10 years from now, whatever you did 10 years from now back, Jesus died for all of that. He's waiting for like 500 people to say amen. <laughs> it's Communion Sunday, you know, right? Okay, here Paul argue this exact same point. We've just seen John argue it. Watch with me on the screen. Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves, meaning Jesus, in Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. If you're new to church, this forgiveness that we're talking about, it means that God has taken the sins and removed them completely. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. You've heard me quote that over and over again here at New Hope. Perhaps you've never written down the reference before. It's an Old Testament reference. It comes from the book of Psalms 10312. Do you know what that's talking about? It's talking about judicial forgiveness. We're talking about the judgment seat of God. Judicial forgiveness before God. And God gives it upon receiving Jesus as Savior, meaning all past All present, whatever you did last night, all future sin is forgiven on a judicial basis, meaning you will not suffer eternal judgment because of Jesus Christ's salvation for you. Amen? All right. We're all on the same page. That's exactly what they're describing here. So the forgiveness that God provides through Jesus is so comprehensive, it removes all shame, it removes all guilt... It removes all punishment forever. And it's unchangeable. That's the astounding thing about it. Nothing can cause the forgiveness to be taken away. No one, Satan included, can successfully bring an accusation against a true believer that can cause God to cancel his forgiveness. So we find the consummate promise in Romans 8.1. I know many of you know it. Be reminded of it. Look on the screen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't say amen enough times when you hear that. It just overwhelms you. No condemnation. It's not there. It's not waiting for you. So no wonder Paul goes on to argue, well, who will bring a charge against God's elect then? Christ Jesus is the one who redeemed you. Who could possibly accuse you? If God is on your side, if God is for you, who could be against you? That's his argument that he makes. Why? Because God has already rendered an unchangeable verdict. So you find David, King David, saying this in the book of Psalms, Psalm 32.1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Do you know why David wrote that? Because it's not true of everyone. How blessed is that one? has the forgiveness of God. David writes this on the heels of committing adultery and then having the husband of the wife he committed adultery with murdered. And he, yeah, he can, he can circle back around and say, how fortunate is that one whose transgression is forgiven because he understood that God will never take our sins into account if we are turning to him. The Old Testament says he's buried your sin in the depth of the sea. So verse 11 of Psalm one hundred and three, twelve. watch, you, you'll see where the east from the west thing came from. Watch this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. Do you know how far the east is from the west? That's infinity, right? The East can't catch up to the West. The West can't chase the East down. It's infinity. That's what's being described here in the Word of God. So no wonder Paul makes that argument in Ephesians 1 when he says, we, believers in Jesus, have redemption through Him according to the riches of His grace. So Ephesians is begging this question. Ponder this question, New Hope. What's greater? God's grace or your sin. What's greater? God's grace or your sin, whatever that thing is that you can't forgive yourself for. If you're a believer in Jesus, God has already forgiven you. What's greater, God's grace or your sin? Romans 5 argues that He has much more grace than we have sin. Paul actually writes this in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. I like the emphasis on much more. How about you? Much more abounds. So if you're a Christ follower, all your sins have been forgiven for all time, past, present, and future. That's the first element or the first distinct aspect of 1 John 1. You've got to deal with the big issue first. You need salvation. Now... Hear this, if all this is true and it is, it begs the hard question. Well then, why should I confess my sins if I'm already saved? And what does that actually look like? I don't know if sad joy is the thing. I used that phrase in the first service. Somebody came up to me and said, "Yeah, I deal with sad joy all the time." Sad joy. Let me play on that thought of sad joy with you right now. In spite of God's stunning generosity through Jesus. Because we are fallen at our core, we still sin. No one ever says amen to that, but we all know it's true, right? Because we're fallen at our core, even though we're saved, we still sin. And even though we still sin, we're still known by God as His children if we're in Jesus. He still knows us as Christians. And I'm going to argue with you because we are those who continue to confess our sin according to 1 John 1. Not that continuing to confess your sin allows you to hold on to your salvation as though you're the one who purchased it, but I want you to see the reasoning of why I would even make that statement. That's actually what verse 9 is saying. Watch this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that verse has been argued a lot by theologians over the years because many would say, well, that I think is applying just to those who are not yet believers, and as they become believers, if they confess their sins, God will forgive them, arguing that they would never have to confess sin again. True, He has forgiven us forever, removing the stain from us. But if we are those who are continuing to confess our sins, we find ourselves in that place because we still have the propensity to sin daily. We fail daily, and John is saying, you may not be faithful, but He's faithful. You may not be true to Him. But He will not fail you, He still forgives our sins. It's part of the sanctification process, big $10 church word, maybe you haven't heard it before. But it's the process by which God is at work in your life, purifying you and making you more and more into the image of Jesus. In other words, God's still working on you, just a quick show of hands. Who would say God is still working on them this morning? Every one of us. We'd have to agree. God's still working on us, He's not giving up on us, but He's purifying us, and He's continuing to pour out His grace upon us, and it is amazing grace. Somebody should write a song about it. It's just (laughs) stunning. How amazing is that? 1 John 1.9 is not a statement, not a command, it's a statement of fact. He's stating a reality. True believers are habitual confessors. I try to practice this in my life on a daily basis. I'm not so good at it. I I try and do it on a weekly basis. I find myself many times not so good at it. You wait a month and you're going to wish you hadn't because you can't remember everything. And yet I come before the Father trying to say, oh man, I didn't mean to do that again. Uh, The unfortunate ones are the ones we did mean to do. And then Paul argues, should we continue in sin that grace would abound? God forbid. So we find ourselves in that place where we're habitual confessors. We're, We're known by God and we're known to God as individuals who would be eager to repent of sin. So you find in 1 John 1, God moved in the heart of John to write these things, to check yourself new hope, to validate a true believer from a false believer. Because his argument is, there are those who claim to walk in the light. There are those who claim to have fellowship with God. But in reality, he's saying they walk in darkness and they're deceiving themselves because they refuse to deal with sin and they're not confessing and repenting. So that's where verse 10 goes. Watch this. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, the pattern of a true believer is a pattern of confessing, not denying sin, but actually acknowledging the reality that it's in your life. Let me give you an example. King David is a believer. I expect to meet King David in heaven one day, a child of God, someone who walked after God according to God's own Word, He's he's the one who chased after Him, and yet… When David didn't confess his sin, it consumed him. He said his bones dried up, mean, the fluids in his body went dry. It consumed his mind. He couldn't sleep. The guilt was overwhelming, and it's just flooding his mind and having an impact on his physical body and on his social relationships, and then you find David hitting the wall. And he confessed before God, and he did admit to the adultery. And he did admit to having the husband of the wife killed. And David understood he offended God and he sinned before God. We find him seeing in that moment that free flow of salvation and the joy of the Lord is restored to him. Those who are believers in Jesus Even though all of our sins are forgiven, our confessors, we do this by nature. And just a tip for you, don't wait till the end of the week. Don't wait till the end of the month. Do it when it happens. Do it the moment that person cuts you off in traffic and you feel like, oh, sorry, Lord. I hope no one was watching that. Right? You got to keep it in check. And God, I come before you. I did it again. So verse 10, let's just follow this out as it closes. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You know what the benefit of the attitude of confession is? The benefit of an attitude of confession is the restoration of a relationship. Because even though we've been forgiven, we are very much aware of our sin and we should be eager to confess it. In order to restore what is broken. So, to answer the question, why would I ask the Lord to forgive me when He's already died for my sins and He's given me eternal life? Understand this there's two stages to forgiveness. It's true, all your sins, as far as God's judgment seat is concerned, because of Jesus, are taken care of. But it's also true, we need to continue to ask the Lord to give us forgiveness. How does that work? where there's the forgiveness of justification and there's the forgiveness of sanctification. And I would put the forgiveness of sanctification in this area of restoration or what we would call a paternal relationship, meaning the father-daughter, father-son relationship. You don't need to be justified again. If you've been saved by Jesus, you're saved for eternity. What you need is to be sanctified And these two kinds of forgiveness, the judicial forgiveness in Jesus means that you're not under condemnation according to Romans 8. It's the forgiveness of justification. But this paternal forgiveness is what we're talking about here. That's granted to you by God, not as your judge, but as your Father. At one time, you were at enmity with God. Before you recognized sin, before you asked Jesus to be your Savior, you were at enmity with God. God didn't see you as His son or daughter. But Jesus takes away your sin, and immediately God sees you as a son or daughter, an adopted child, Paul writes. That means you're in a father-daughter, father-son relationship. It's granted by God, not as your judge, but as your father. And as your father, he becomes grieved when his children sin because he wants you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So it's in this fatherly sense that we see Jesus teaching us the Lord's Prayer. I wonder if you've ever thought of that before. Think of this moment the disciples come to Jesus. They say to him, Will you teach us to pray? Follow the flow. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus is teaching that to believers. He's teaching that to the apostles who are following him. He's teaching them how to pray. So it's in this fatherly sense, Jesus is teaching the Lord's prayer. Father, forgive us. And in that moment, I promise you, you're not doubting your justification. You've been justified, but you continue to be sanctified. I find times, many times, when I read things, it's much more clear to me. And I found a great quote from Dr. MacArthur. I wanted you to see it around this same line. Let me put this quote up on the screen for you. "'You have been set free from the penalty of sin, but be honest and realistic. Though you are set free from the penalty of sin, you have not been delivered from the presence and power of sin. And while you don't need to be justified again, you need to be continually washed.'" He is eternally, and I mean God the Father, is eternally pleased with your justification. You have been made perfect in Jesus. He is displeased with the breach in the relationship. The forgiveness of justification takes care of all the judicial guilt, but it does not eliminate the Father's displeasure when we sin. So your justification is a fixed reality, but your sanctification... That depends on how you deal with the sin in your life. Do you want the joy of your salvation to be restored to you? Are you going through a period of dry time? I heard from multiple people after the first service who said, that's me, that's right where I'm at. I I feel like there was a time when I was a much higher plane. And So I have to say back to an individual the same things I've had to say to myself. What got in the way? I had a, a very wise friend say to me quite a few years ago, He's probably 20 years older than me. I'm not even sure if he's still alive. But I remember saying to him when I was in my 30s, man, I feel so distant from God. And without even drawing a breath, he immediately said, well, we know who moved, don't we? What? I mean, I had to drink that in for a moment. He said, God didn't move. God never moves. If there's been movement, it's been on your part. So if you feel distant from God, you better be looking at yourself in the mirror. Are you going through dry times right now? You want the joy of your salvation? Address this issue. So the forgiveness in 1 John 1.19 is relational. It's a parental forgiveness. I'm going to say it's a restorative forgiveness. When I had relationship with my dad while he's still alive on the earth, there were times, definitely as a teenager, where I know I breached the relationship and offended my dad. He didn't kick me out of the family. I never stopped being his son. I still had the paternal relationship. But I definitely breached the relationship at times and had to seek ways to restore it. Not that I was going to get kicked out of the family. It's that kind of daily discipline that brings the restoration of joy to your life. So what does confession involve? Confession involves admitting what we did was wrong. But there's another component to it, confession with repentance. Repentance involves changing course where we not only acknowledge the sin that's got a hold of us or the thing that's in our life, but we take steps to reverse that course of action because a confession could be really sincere. You might go into a very private place in a quiet room where nobody's going to disturb you and get on your knees and say, God, I did this. But if you repeat the same behavior over and over and over again, that may not be a very sincere confession. Without repentance, it could only be words. That's why you find John the Baptist on the side of the Jordan River. He's baptizing people, and the Pharisees show up, and he calls them out, and he sees them over there, and he says, you guys, before you get baptized, how about if you produce fruit in keeping with repentance? In other words, show it. Show that it's really sincere in your life. So the Bible presents two really clear avenues of confession. First, we confess to God. But secondly, we'd have to confess to others that we would have offended. Look at me on the screen at this, James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. That's not talking about airing your dirty laundry in public. That's talking about going to someone whom you have breached the relationship with and seeking as a brother and sister in Christ to restore what you damaged. That's what James is writing about. Sin is a breached relationship. First and foremost, it's a breached relationship with God. But in some cases, it's a breached relationship with another person, and that needs restoration. So when we wrong someone, it's appropriate to confess and seek their forgiveness where it's possible. Just hear me on this. In our generation, in 2021, that factor that we're talking about here, there's a factor that hinders the confession of sin. And I don't mean this as an insult to anyone, but the factor is ignorance. We live in a period of time where today, very clearly, people are far more biblically illiterate and their hearts have grown cold towards the things of God. So that neglect of Scripture leads many people to be ignorant of God's moral standards. And I would add to that, including Christians, maybe especially Christians because at least those who are non-believers don't understand what they're even missing out on. But those who know the Word of God should know it to the degree that they really recognize they can't freely indulge in sinful desires without any remorse whatsoever, and they would rather remain in the dark instead of confessing. Watch what David did when he saw this issue in his life. Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts. What's David doing there? He's opening himself up to be vulnerable before God, saying, there might even be things in my life, Father, that I'm not even remembering. God, did you bring that back to mind? Because I don't want a breached relationship with you. Have I done things that have offended you? God, did you reveal that to me? Search my hearts, try me, test me, know me, and see, see if there's any wicked way in me. That's a vulnerable person. Everyone has sin, and one of the results of sin is guilt. I'm going to challenge you this morning to be thankful for the guilt for this reason guilt drives us to seek forgiveness. So how should I deal with feelings of guilt even after confessing? Well, to wrap this up, I'm just gonna give you five things you can do personally. Recognize first and foremost, if you're dealing with feelings of guilt even after confessing sin, recognize in Jesus the most heinous thing you have ever done in Jesus is completely blotted out. You good with that? It's true. The worst thing you have done, because God's grace, we've already said, is greater, it's much more than your sin. So we find this in Scripture, 1 John 2, 1, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Aren't you glad this morning, New Hope, that Jesus has your back? That's what it's saying right there. The one who died for you is also your defender, not your accuser, he's your defender before God. Freedom from sin, however, does not guarantee that you won't still remember what you've done. And the reality of new hope is, we have an enemy. And the enemy is real, and he's called the accuser of the brethren. He's also known as Satan. And Satan loves to throw things up in your face over and over, reminding you of your failures. So when you experience feelings of guilt, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Do the following. Just watch these flow. First of all, start at the beginning. Confess all of your known sin. In some cases, feelings of guilt are appropriate because the confession is needed. Many times we feel guilty because we are guilty. We accept that. Number two, ask the Lord to reveal any other sin. That's a biblical pattern. Have the courage to be completely honest before God. You're not going to surprise Him. He already knows. It's just you dealing with the reality of, yeah, this is in my life. Number three, where it's possible, seek to make restitution. You may have a sin issue that you committed against somebody else, but maybe that person's dead and gone. They're not even on this planet, or they're not in your world anymore. There's not much you can do about that, but as much as you can do, come to that place where you deal about with it. That's the part where John the Baptist was talking about, the, the, the fruit of repentance. Here's the next one. Reject and rebuke false guilt, and you might even need to do that out loud, and that might seem really weird to you. I'll tell you that I pray out loud. I've tried to develop that habit in my life even when I'm with no one else, when I'm alone. I didn't used to do that 20 years ago. I've developed it in the last 20 years, praying out loud, because I notice that my mind doesn't wander as much when I'm praying out loud, and I'm much more careful about the words that I use. It makes me that much more alert. But when feelings arise over sin that you've already dealt with, you may need to verbally just say out loud, I reject that. I rebuke that because Jesus died for me. God, will you take that away? And that leads us to the next one, number five. Ask the Lord to rebuke your accuser, Satan. God, will you rebuke him? He keeps throwing this back in my life. I don't want to live with this. So following that right up, I would say ask God to restore to you the joy of your salvation. So finally, if you've done those things, it's time to move on, because I want you to remember you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is what Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, as anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. Part of the old that has gone is the remembrance of past sins. In other words, letting them go. Not wallowing in it. Sadly, some people are prone to wallowing in the muck. Maybe the muck is warm and they like it there. But I want to tell you this morning, that muck is not of God. God wouldn't put you in the muck if He's forgiven you of it. It runs completely counter to the victorious life that God wants for you in Jesus. I don't know who said it. I can't tell you the name of the author, but I just want you to see the quote to close this out. It says this, if God saved you out of a sewer, don't dive back in and swim around. That is pretty good advice. So today, you come to the Lord's table, you come for communion, I'm going to challenge you to come with an attitude of confession. It's actually part of what we read every month when we read that paragraph before you pick up the elements. So before you walk to one of these tables in the front or in the back, let me just read to you from 1 Corinthians Hear the confession element that's coming out of that. Verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here comes the confession part. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's why we allow the time for you to examine yourself. Come up to the table when you're ready, but this time for you right now is to talk to the Father about any issues you have in your life that you want to deal with. When Paul wrote that, he wrote that to the church. He wrote that to Christians, and he was saying to Christians, don't take so lightly the things that Jesus did for you. Examine yourself, deal with it, and then, drink of the cup, and taste of the bread. So this time, right now, for you, do that, and go to the tables if you're new here. Pick up the elements that are there if you're a believer in Jesus. Bring it back to your seat, and I will talk you through the rest. If you're able to physically stand, would you stand with us? We don't receive communion to be saved but rather because we are saved. amen. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He held up a piece of bread. He said, this is going to represent my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It was in the same meal. He held up a cup. We believe it to be the third cup of that meal, the cup of redemption, in which he said, when you drink this, remember my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, because of the great sacrifice, (laughs) we just praise you. We fail with words. Our English language is so incomplete, but we just bust with joy to know that you gave us redemption through Jesus. So we remember and we rejoice and we thank you in the majestic name of the one who bought us at such a great price. The Lord Jesus Christ is his name and all God's people said, amen. Before I let you go out the door, as always, if you need somebody to pray with after the service, there'll be individuals over at the prayer room. They'd be happy to pray with you. If I haven't met you before, I'll be down here in the front. it would be my pleasure to greet you and meet you. I'm going to send you out the door with a blessing, a benediction from the Bible to join me. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Go in peace and have a great week.